So in, in 1996, I was, uh, summer of 96, I was about to be a junior in high school. I lived on the coast of uh, South Carolina in Charleston. And, um, you know, I loved, my brother and I loved to surf together. And I remember in 1996, that summer, a hurricane came through. It was Hurricane Bertha. And uh, Hurricane Bertha came through, and it, it didn't come ashore in Charleston. It just kind of sat offshore. And if you know anything about surfing, that's like dream come true, because it just kicks up some killer surf, and it didn't really hurt anybody in our city, which was awesome. So I remember my brother and I see this news flash, and we're watching the news together on TV, because that's what you did. You watched news on TV, not on a computer or anything else. And we're watching the news on TV, and the anchor is talking about the surf at Folly Beach, which is where we used to go. And we see this image, my brother and I are like, we've we got to go. So we like get our boards on the car, we drive out there. I'll never forget, there was this point where you're driving out to Folly Beach where you come to an end of the trees and you can see the surf, and we were both like wide-eyed. Like, I'd never seen surf like that in real life, only like in Surfer Magazine. I'd never, it was just these huge barrels, like, you know, these waves that are breaking in such a way where it forms a curtain, like a hollow tube where the surfers are like hiding behind the wave, and we're like, oh my goodness. We get out of our cars, we get our boards, we wax up, get a leash on, all the stuff. We start paddling out, and it hits me as I'm paddling out, I've never been in surf this big. Like, I've never seen a wave this large in my life. I had this idea that like, yeah, I'm a surfer, I'm awesome. Man, let me just tell you, that changes immediately when you see the size of these waves. I remember I'm trying to paddle out to get into the lineup and I couldn't even hardly get past the white water that was coming in. I finally made it past the white water, I'm exhausted. And then you get to this point where you're paddling out where the waves that are breaking, they're not white water when they get to you, they're just a wall of water that is ready to just come down on your head. And so the way that you get past is you have to go under the wave. And I remember the first time I tried it, I'm like paddling out, and I've done this like lots of times, but never in surf this big. And I go to duck dive under this wave, and it just picked me up and just tossed me like onto my back, just bam! And like I was just like instantly... You know, when you're standing on the ground, you feel like your body's pretty solid. I was like a rag doll in a washing machine. I mean, it was just flipping me over and over and over again. It was actually terrifying. I couldn't get my breath. I didn't know which way was up, which way was down. I grabbed my leash, which is connected to my surfboard. I knew my surfboard would float. So I followed it to the surface. I come up, <gasps> take a huge breath of water, only to turn around and see another massive wave just, <laughs> just land on top of me. It did the whole thing again. I finally come up and get a breath and I managed to get on my board and go straight back into the beach. <laughs> and I remember I get out of the water and like my pride is ruined, I'm terrified. I sit down on the beach and as I'm sitting down there on the beach, I can feel the waves. They're so big you can feel the beach shaking as the waves crash on the water. And I watched three different guys come out of that water that day with their surfboards broken in two. They were like me, thought they knew what they were doing, and then they didn't. And as I sat there on the beach and felt the crashing waves and saw the broken surfboards, I just had this moment where the only appropriate response was like reverential fear. Like I was safe on the beach, but I knew enough, I'd experienced enough to know that what was out there was bigger than me in every single way, more powerful than me in every single way. And if I was gonna go out there, I was gonna have to play on its terms because that ocean was way bigger than I am. It was more powerful than me. You know, we all, maybe we've, we've all had these moments where suddenly you just come face to face with kind of how, how small we are, how fragile we are. We've talked about this several times in this series. You know, I remember one time hearing, uh, maybe you've had where lightning, it crashes right near you and it's so fast that the thunder comes right after it and you can feel it in your bones. You ever had that experience? It's like, whoa, it like shakes you and jolts you. You're like, whoa, that was powerful. That was bigger than me. That was stronger than me. And this morning we're gonna be looking at some pictures of who God is 
the power of who God is. And if I'm honest, even trying to talk about it feels uncomfortable because it doesn't line up with who we sometimes want God to be. But I I just want to honor God. I want to read what the Word says. I want to read the picture of His power and trust that His Holy Spirit is going to work in us to help us understand what that means for us. And so, man, what I really wanted to do this morning, what I really wanted to do was like a two-hour Bible study where we just sit down and devour the Scriptures to get the full big picture of who God is and what He's doing. I don't think most of you want to stay here for two hours, and uh, I don't think the 11 o'clock would love that if we were still going when they got here. So I can't do that. So I'm going to do the best I can, all right? So we're going to do this. So just a reminder of where we are. We're in this series called God Is. We're just exploring the indescribable character of who God is. And why? Well, it's because, you know, we've said this quote like every week, this quote from A.W. Tozer where he says, hey, whatever comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Whatever comes to a person's mind when they think about God, if we don't have an accurate understanding of who God is, we cannot respond to him the way that we need to. And so the most important thing about us is what comes to our mind when we think about God. And so we're rooting this whole scripture in Exodus chapter 34. So I'm going to read this verse to us. We've read it every single week. And then we're going to talk about where we've been. So Exodus 34, this is where God reveals himself to his servant Moses Moses has asked him, Lord, Lord, will you show me your glory? Show me your name. And he says, I'll proclaim my name in front of you, Moses. I'm going to pass in front of you proclaiming my name. And this is what he says, Exodus 34, verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh. Where you see Lord in all caps, that is the word Yahweh. That is the name of God. It means the I am. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord from Exodus 34. So, So we've looked at this name of God, Yahweh, the great I am, and we've talked about this idea that the I am captures the limitless nature of who God is. He says, I will be who I will be. I am the I am. He's unchanging. So we've talked about how he's limitless in time. So the first week we talked about how he's eternal. We talked about how he's limitless in knowledge. He knows everything. He knows all the most complex things about creation that you can imagine, all the way down to knowing the very number of hairs on your head. He knows you personally and intimately. He's the all-knowing. Last week, we kind of went out of order a little bit because we wanted to talk with you about the news and what's happening with this building. So we talked about God being faithful. This week, we're finishing talking about his name, Yahweh. And we're going to talk about his limitless once again and how he is limitless in power. He's limitless in power. He is the all-powerful Yahweh. Now, the Bible talks about the power of God in a wide variety of ways. Um, The biblical writers throughout the Bible, they'll use creation. In fact, Romans 1 actually tells us that we can know who God is and what he's like just by looking at creation. When I'm sitting on the beach and I'm seeing those waves that could crush me and destroy me, I'm getting a glimpse into the power of who God is. Okay, so creation reveals. And the the psalmists, when you read the psalms over and over again, they'll talk about God creating and how he spoke everything into being, and they'll use creation to talk about his power. Okay, the the prophets will talk about his power in a variety of ways, but there's one place in particular where we get a really clear glimpse of God's power at work, and it's actually this story that this entire series is built on. It's in the story of the Exodus, 
of what happens at Mount Sinai with the Israelites. This is one of the greatest glimpses we get of the power of God. So we're gonna look really closely at what's happening here at Mount Sinai when Moses hears the name of God and what happens before that. And so I've kind of unpacked this in previous sermons. If you don't know the Exodus story, Basically, the Israelites find themselves enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. God moves on their behalf in powerful ways. And one great display of power is how he comes up against the gods of Egypt and the Pharaoh of Egypt. We're not going to dig into that today, but go read the beginning of Exodus if you've never read it before. God shows his power in a great way to deliver his people from slavery. He parts the Red Sea, another great display of power that we're not going to get into today, but he walk across on dry land. And then they come to Mount Sinai. And it's here at Mount Sinai that we find this description of God's presence that is just dripping with language of power. Look with me in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. The people of God have come to Mount Sinai and God has told Moses like, hey, I'm going to appear before the people. He gives them, he tells them what to do to get ready for it. He says, but listen, my presence is about to come down on this mountain. Now, Mount Sinai is close to an 8,000 foot peak. I mean, it's not like a little hill. This is a mountain and they're at the bottom of it. And God has told Moses, I'm getting ready to come down. My presence is about to come down on this mountain. And so get the people ready. And so when God comes down, look with me in Exodus 19, starting in verse 16. This is a description of what it was like when he comes. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Guys, this is a picture of what happens when God's presence comes down in the midst of people. It's this incredible display of glory, 8,000 foot mountain shaking, literally trembling, lightning, Smoke, thunder, fire, thick clouds. Like these are the signs of power, the displays of power that accompany God coming, God's presence coming amongst his people. I want you to pay attention to these uh, characteristics, thunder, lightning, thick cloud, a trumpet blast. These things are really important signifiers, signs of God's presence and God's power. And this is the image that we're given. In fact, in Exodus 20, what happens is God speaks in Exodus 20. Look at verse uh, 18 through 19. And when the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, you speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Man, that... They see this display of power and they're terrified. Like God comes near and they go, oh, no, 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 Moses, Moses, you do it. You do it, Moses. We don't want to to hear him anymore. We don't want to see it. If we listen to that God, we're going to die. His power is so all-consuming, so great, so dreadful. Like we, Moses, you go, you do it. This is their response 
to God's power being manifest in their midst. And guys, this is the image we're given of God's presence, his power over and over again throughout the Old Testament. We'll see this in the prophets. If you read through the Old Testament prophets, they describe this thing called the day of the Lord where God will come in power and over and over again, it's accompanied with thick cloud, with lightning, with trumpet blasts, with fire. You read through the Kings, first and second Kings, when Solomon dedicates the temple, guess what comes down in the temple? A thick cloud. The Israelites were guided by a cloud by day and a fire by night. This presence of God amidst his people is marked by this incredibly powerful and sometimes terrifying marks. And this is the picture of God that we get in the Old Testament. Now, I know, I know we read that sometimes and we go, well, that's the Old Testament. That's, that's, you know, that's God used to do those kind of things. God doesn't move like that anymore. Like, we have Jesus. This isn't really the way God works anymore. And, and I hear this all the time, and it's really confusing. It's honestly really confusing for people that are trying to understand the God of the Bible because what they see is, well, why does the God of the Old Testament full of fire and smoke and lightning and blah, and, and, then, and then the New Testament doesn't seem to be that way. But guys, this is a false dichotomy. It's a false narrative that God has somehow changed. What does Jesus say about the power of God? If you have your Bibles, look with me in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, just to let you know what's happening here, Jesus, he is talking with his disciples. This is shortly before he'll be arrested. And he's talking with them. They have asked him very plainly. They said, hey, Jesus, when, when will the end come and what will be the sign of your return? That's what they've asked him. And so he goes through, and if you've ever read Matthew 24, it, it can feel confusing. I wish I had time just to teach the whole chapter today. But ultimately, Jesus gets to this place where he starts describing what it's like when he will return. This is the return of Jesus, our Savior, our Messiah, the Christ. This is what he says, Matthew 24 and verse 27. He says, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Okay, so Jesus basically says, listen, it will be so noticeable, it will be unavoidable, unignorable that when I come, he's the Son of Man, it's a reference to Daniel 7. He says, I, when I come, it will be like lightning flashing across the sky. Nobody can miss it. He uses the imagery of lightning to capture what it's like when he returns. Look down to verse 30. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming what? On the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with what? With a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the end of the heavens to the other. Guys, when Jesus tries to describe to his disciples his return, he uses the exact same signifiers that were there at Mount Sinai. He's coming on the clouds with a loud trumpet blast, with lightning flashing. Guys, this is the imagery of Christ's return. Now, you might go, well, that's not how I read that. That's not, but guys, listen, Jesus was speaking to first century Jewish men. These guys understood that their only Bible was what we call the Old Testament. And I, I wish I had time to just go through and show you every single place in the Old Testament 
where the coming of God, what the Old Testament prophets call the day of the Lord, was accompanied by these things. Moses talked about it in Deuteronomy 33. The judge Deborah talked about it in Judges 5. Amos talks about it in Amos 5. Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 63 and Isaiah 66. It's in Psalm 68. It's in Ezekiel 9 and Ezekiel 14. Over and over and over again, the Old Testament describes the coming of God on the clouds. Daniel 7 talks about one like a son of man who approaches the Ancient of Days riding on the clouds. Guys, the language that Jesus uses here with these Jewish men who knew the Jewish Bible was very clear. He's saying, when I come, it will be a display of power, the likes of which you have not seen since Mount Sinai. This is the return of Jesus, marked by power and great awe. Now, I know we might be sitting here and you're going, whoa, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Where's the good news? Like, I thought, well, I came to church to be encouraged, and now you're telling me that Jesus is going to come back like Mount Sinai. Did you see how they responded at Mount Sinai? They were terrified. Why should we be hopeful and longing for the return of Jesus if it's going to look like that? Because this is where we need a deeper understanding of the overarching narrative of what Scripture is, is trying to teach us. You see, there's good news in this, a couple pieces of good news. Here's the first one. The first one is this, is that guys, God has not changed. And this is really good news. I know sometimes it feels like it's good news to think, well, maybe God changed, he's not like that anymore. But guys, a God that changes, that moves the goalpost is not a good God. We need a God that is unchanging. Next week, we're gonna start looking at all these other descriptors of God in Exodus 34. Gracious, compassionate, abounding in love and faithfulness, slow to anger and forgiving. How many of you want those things about God to remain true and steadfast? You can raise your hands. How many of you want those attributes of God to remain true and steadfast? I know I do. I don't want him to change. I want my God to be compassionate, merciful, full of love, abounding in truth. I need my God, I want my God to be like that. Well guys, if God has changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, then who's to say he has not changed on any one of those other things? We need him to stay the same, and that is what he promises to do. The Bible tells us he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is the unchanging God. He's consistent. And if we want the gracious and compassionate nature to be true, then we have to be okay with his all-powerful nature also being true. The other part of the good news is this, though, guys. God doesn't change. The other good news is this. Did you know this all-powerful God, the burning desire of his heart is to dwell with his people? Did you know that? This all-powerful God, this all-consuming fire, the one who shakes mountains, the burning desire of his heart is to dwell with you, to be with you, to be in your midst, to be amongst us, to make his home with us. You know, this is how the Bible starts. Genesis chapter three, we find God literally walking in the cool of the morning in the Garden of Eden looking for his kids. He dwells with his people. You get to the end, you get to Revelation 21, and literally, Revelation 21, verse 3 says, and God's dwelling place will be with his people. These are the bookends of the Bible. God's heart, the burning desire of his heart is to dwell with his people. 
He longs to be amongst us. But guys, the all-powerful, the all-powerful God is also the all-personal God. And what he wants more than anything else is to personally make his dwelling amongst his people. And we go, well, if this is true, then what's with the clouds and the thunder and the smoke and the thick darkness? What what is that all about? Well, guys, between Genesis 3 and, and Revelation 21, which is actually the time period that we're still living in, I don't know, Revelation 21 is future, is yet to happen. Between Genesis 3, where God walked in the garden in the cool of day, and Revelation 21 that is yet to come, this tragedy happens, that humanity begins living in rebellion to God. Guys, this word sin that we talk about, if, if God, a simple way to understand, I've said this several times, sin, I mean, I mean God is the all-loving source of all life, source of all love, and sin is anything that falls short of that. Sin is being separated from the all-loving, from the source of all life. Anything that is not in line with God's character, with God's nature, cannot exist in his presence. This is what sin is. This is why it's a tragedy, because it takes a beautiful moment in Genesis 3 where God's looking for his kids, and it introduces this fractured relationship where no longer can humanity live in the presence of the perfect, holy, loving, all-powerful God, but they become separated from him. And the rest of the story, if you want to understand what the rest of this story, this book is about, from cover to cover, it is the story of the all-powerful God who wants nothing more than to dwell with his people and he will go to any length to make it possible where the all-powerful God can live in the midst of a sinful people without absolutely crushing them because of their sin. Because guys, that's the simple truth. When the all-holy God, the all-powerful God, that's what's happening in Exodus 19, when the all-powerful God comes in the presence of sin, they cannot coexist, and I will tell you who will lose every single time. Sin loses, and the all-powerful God wins. And God's heart breaks because his children that he longs to dwell with are marked, are marked by sin. And so what does God do? He works so hard to make it possible so that he can dwell in our midst. It's really beautiful, you know, when you, when you go back and you read Exodus 19 and 20, and you understand the context of the story, it's not this mean God who's trying to scare people. That's actually quite the opposite. Did you know that Exodus 19, we missed this because we were a different culture. Did you know that Exodus 19 and 20, what we're seeing happen there is actually an exact mirror image of what happened in a Jewish wedding ceremony? That, that what's happening at Mount Sinai is a wedding ceremony between Yahweh, the I am, and his people, Israel. That he is trying to covenant with them to create a way where he can dwell in their midst. Now, here's what I mean. So in a Jewish wedding ceremony, you have this thing called the mikvah. And this is where there's a ceremonial cleansing where the bride actually cleans herself, like washes herself with water to be ready to be presented. And the groom does the same thing, to be presented to one another. If you go read Exodus 19, shortly before what we just read, God comes to Moses, he says, hey, have the people consecrate themselves and wash themselves so they can be presentable for me when I come down on the mountain. It's a wedding ceremony. In a, wedding, in a Jewish wedding ceremony, you also have this thing called a hoopah. A hoopah is the cover that the bride and groom stand underneath, and it represents the covering of God. Did you know that at Mount Sinai, the hoopah, the covering, was the cloud of God's glory that actually covered the mountain and covered the Israelites so they could stand together underneath it? If this sounds like a stretch for you, go read Isaiah 4. 
In Isaiah 4, Isaiah writes very clearly that the covering over Israel, the chuppah over Israel, is the smoke of God's glory, the cloud of God's glory. And so you've got a, a mikvah, you've got the ceremonial cleansing, you've got a chuppah, you've got the covering, but then you've also got this thing called a ketubah. The ketubah was an exchanging of vows, just like we exchange vows in a wedding ceremony today. The bride and the groom, they make covenants with one another and they share vows. This happened at Mount Sinai. When you keep reading in chapter 19, it's really amazing. The Israelites are standing at the base of the mountain, covered by the chuppah of God's glory, and God speaks to the entire people group, and he lays out these things that we call the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, which were actually the covenantal vows of a wedding ceremony. Listen to how the, listen to how the Ten Commandments start. This is chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, the very beginning, starting in verse one. And God spoke all these words, very first command, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, our culture would read that and go, man, what an intolerant God. He really thinks he's something. Nobody ever says that to a husband who expects his bride to be exclusively devoted to him on his wedding day, Right? I mean, isn't that what a husband longs for from his bride? I don't want you to have any other husbands before me. I don't want you to have any other men before me. Isn't that what a bride longs for from her husband? I don't want you to have any other women before me. We don't go, how intolerant. Why do you think you can be so exclusive? Well, maybe some in our culture would, but we, you know, we all, we know, like that's just, this is part, like we expect this in a wedding ceremony. And this is what God is inviting his people to. He's going, listen, I'm your God. I want you to be my people. I don't want you to have any other gods before me. I'm the only one. It's a wedding ceremony. And then he goes through the rest of the Ten Commandments, and he's laying out, he goes, listen, you see how powerful I am. You see how big I am, how all-consuming I am as the mountain is shaking before them. And he goes, here's the way to live so that we can dwell together. This is what the Ten Commandments are. I had a friend of mine this week, he said, it's kind of like when you go bowling and the bumpers are out. The bumpers are there to make sure you stay on the lane so that you can actually hit some pins. The Ten Commandments are like bumper bowling. They're like the bumpers that stick out to try to keep you in the right path. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of a weird metaphor, but you're kind of right. This is what God is trying to do. He's going, Israel, my people, my bride, if you want to live, I long to dwell with you. But if you live in defiance to me, it's a gutter ball every time. If you live in defiance to me, you see the power that is actually going to consume you. This is what's happening at Mount Sinai. It's a wedding ceremony, guys. Now, here's the thing, though. What happens in the story is really tragic. I wish I could teach the whole thing. Again, there's so much to teach here. I wish I could teach the whole thing. But in this wedding ceremony, you know, the people go, no, we don't want to hear from God. We read that in chapter 20. So Moses goes up on the mountain and he spends 40 days and 40 nights listening from God about how the Israelites can dwell with Yahweh, their creator. In the middle of those 40 days, the Israelites get kind of tired of waiting. I want you to imagine that. They're sitting at the base of the mountain, thunder, lightning flashes, fire on the mountain. They're down there. They're like, man, when's Moses coming back? This is getting kind of boring. Uh, 40 days, they're like, hey, Aaron, make us another God. He's like, all right, give me all your gold. And they make this golden calf, right? Now, guys, stick with the wedding ceremony. I want you to understand what's happening here. This would be like, this would be like at a wedding, the, the vows have been spoken, the I do's have been said, the pronouncement of husband and wife has been made. And while the husband is off signing the marriage certificate, he turns around to see his new bride making out with her old high school boyfriend on the dance floor. <laughs> I mean, that's what's happening right here. 
How do you think the groom would feel? How would you feel if the person you just covenanted with immediately turns their back on you and betrays you? You know, we, we look at God in the Old Testament and we're like, wow, he's really unreasonable. What a temper problem. God, God looks and he goes, this unfaithful people. And he's frustrated. He's hurt. God has feelings. Okay, this is what's happening at Mount Sinai. And when you read the rest of the Old Testament, it's like that story over and over again. God forgives them. God draws near. They call out for him for help. He draws near. He rescues them. Then they turn against him again. And then they cry out for him because trouble comes. And then he draws near and he rescues them. All these things over and over again. And when you get to the end of the Old Testament, you find yourself wondering, like, man, how will this God ever get to dwell with his people? Will it ever be possible? Will it ever happen? And then we get to the Gospels. Because this is, this is why the story of Jesus is so beautiful. God comes in human form in flesh. He goes, how am I going to dwell amongst my people? Philippians 2 tells us, he says, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped onto, to held onto for his own advantage, but he gave it up, emptied himself, becoming nothing, being made into a servant and offering his life even unto death. How is God going to dwell with his people when his people keep rebelling against him? The wages of sin is death. This is what the Bible teaches us. Because God is the source of all life, sin is separation from that. The wages of sin is death. If God tries to dwell with his people marked by sin, the wages are death. And so Jesus comes. And his ministry is so full of power. There's so many stories we could tell, right? I mean, where he calms the storm, he's on the boat, there's wind and lightning and all that, and Jesus stands up and he says, peace be still, and the storm stops immediately. All through Jesus' life, we get displays of his power over sickness. He heals the disease. We see his power at work, but he is approachable. We see the all-powerful perfectly become the all-personal. And ultimately, we see this happen on the cross where Jesus hangs and dies. The death that God's people deserve, Jesus comes in, Son of God, God in the flesh, hangs on a cross, gives his life, And then for three days, he lies dead. On the third day, he conquers death. Guys, this is the story of a God who longs to dwell with his people, and yet his people are marked by rebellion, and he keeps going, how will I come near? How will I come near? Matthew 27, when Jesus dies, guess what there is? There's an earthquake. There's darkness. And a Roman soldier standing at the cross that sees Jesus die, he goes, surely this man was the Son of God. Even the Gentile, who probably never read the Old Testament, saw the signs of power, and he knew who Jesus was when he saw it. Now, there's, there's, man, there's, there's so much, I, and I'll be honest, this is what I got. Like, I've been asking the Lord, like, Lord, where do we go from here? <laughs> all-powerful God, he wants to dwell with his people. How did he do it? Well, he took on flesh, and he suffered the death that we all deserve, and then he conquered death, and he says, guys, I have life for you. And here's the truth, is that when Jesus says, when he's coming back, he's coming back with lightning and cloud and a loud trumpet blast and the whole world will see it. And Jesus does not want us to live in fear of that day. This is why he came first as a servant. It's why he came first to suffer. And he says, listen, all you have to do, the the invitation, just believe in me. Put your hope in me. Put your faith in me. 
Be my disciple. Follow me. He's like, this is all, it's all a grace I have for you. When that day comes, you will have nothing to be afraid of, but you will stand with confidence before the King of Kings, before the all-powerful God. You will look upon him being filled with hope and joy. This is the promise. And I love it. He doesn't leave the promise without a mark. You get to Acts chapter two. And Jesus has ascended to be back with God. And he tells his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit. And the disciples are gathered in Acts chapter two and they're praying, they're praying. And we all know the story. If you've been in church any amount of time, the Holy Spirit gets poured out. And guess what it's accompanied by? A violent wind and fire. But this time, the all-powerful God, he becomes even more personal because it's fire on the head of every single believer as they are filled with his presence, the promised Holy Spirit. That guys, between now and the time that Jesus returns, he's given us the gift of his spirit that we may be marked as his. We're marked as his. The all-powerful God longs to dwell with his people and he has gone to great lengths so that it can be possible, so that on the day that he visits us, all who have faith in him, all who have hope in him, will not be crushed by him, but will be saved by him. Now, I, I, I wrestle with how to say this, like every time I have to talk about it. But the simple truth is, guys, those who do not have Jesus, the day of Christ's return is a terrifying day. If you don't know the Lord, if you don't if you haven't put your hope in him, your faith in him, if you haven't trusted in him completely, that day, he says, will be like a thief in the night. It'll be a terrifying day. But he says, for all who call upon the name of the Lord, for all who put their faith in King Jesus, for all who say, I need that God to save me, it'll be a day of hope and great joy, and you'll long for it. This is the invitation. This is what he offers us. So this morning, we're, you know, we're gonna take communion. And guys, communion is this place where we come around the body and the blood of Jesus. And it's this reminder, oh my goodness, the all-powerful God who longs to dwell with us has gone to every length, including laying down his own life so that we can live with him into eternity. So as we take communion, we're just gonna thank God. Say, God, thank you. Thank you for using your power for my good. And I want to encourage you, you can talk, you can pray for one another. It'll be a slide on the screen here. You can kind of say, you can kind of like, man, where do you need to see the power of God in your life? Because the all-powerful God is for you. Guess what? He longs to use his power on your behalf. And so you can take communion, thank him for the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and then pray for one another. If you need prayer, if you'd like to be prayed for, we'll be standing over here at the Respond Banner. If you have not given your life to Jesus, if you've not trusted in him as your savior, you can do that today. Come talk to me. I would love to talk you through what that looks like and how to do that. I love you all so much. Um, we're gonna take communion now. Let me pray for you. And then we're just gonna take, move into a time of communing and worshiping the Lord. Father God, I love you. You are the all-powerful and yet you are so personal. I thank you, Father, that you have gone to great lengths because you long to dwell with us. You know us, you love us. Father, I ask today, would you let manifestations of your power, the power that you show us you're for us, would you let that even be present? Lord, today in our midst, would you heal sickness? Today in our midst, would you heal broken hearts? Today in our midst, will you fill us with hope? Today in our midst, will you pour out your spirit as a sign to show us that you are faithful? 
and that your power is working for our good as we await the glorious day when Jesus returns. So we just invite you to move in our midst, Lord, as we commune, as we pray for one another, and as we break bread. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.